0: As an anaesthetist and the man who set up and ran the intensive care unit at Rockingham Hospital just outside Perth, Dr Bruce Powell was used to being at the front lines of dealing with traumatic injury. He'd also been a medical officer in the British Royal Navy and was the long-standing medical director of Donate Life Western Australia, which oversees organ and tissue donation in WA. But in 2018, he ended up an intensive care patient after a life-threatening biking accident. That event in that year changed his life forever and he's now a dedicated advocate for brain injury patients and for organ donation. But what was the year that made him? Dr. Bruce Powell, welcome. Thank you very much. Bruce, you haven't chosen the year of the accident 2018 as the year that made you. What year have you selected and why?
1: No, you're right. And actually, you know, when I chatted to, to my editor, a person who helps me write about it, we actually she said to me, for goodness sake don't say 2018 which was the year of the crash she said because that's not that's not what's going to define you and it's just another phase of your life and i thought that was a very important thing for me to realize is that if you're not mm. careful you know you get fixed in a certain point in time and you never move on so having talked a lot about 2018 actually 1985 is the year i've chosen because that's the year i finally Managed to fight my way into medical school.
0: Fight your way into medical school. I, I, I'm not familiar with the admission system in the UK, but is it some sort of boxing process? Or?
1: Well, I'm, look, um, I think I think these days, I think the, the word is neurodivergent. So I wasn't <laughs> the most normal of students, and I was a terrible kid at school. I was very bright. I mean, I, I you know I, I don't say that. In any kind of boastful way, a bit like being seven feet tall, you either are or you're not, and I happen to be bright. And so I never did any study at school and, and sort of cruised my way through. And, you know, schools at that point, well, if you were good at sciences, you did medicine. If you were good at arts, you did law. You know, that was the sort of mm. the school aspired for you to be able to do that. And, um, yeah, so the first time I did my exams to try and get into medical school, I kind of didn't get the grades because I didn't do any work. So then my dear mum and dad then paid for me to go to a private place in London, um, and I didn't do any work again. And in fact, (laughs) I didn't even connect when the exams were. So I actually, with all my mum paying all this money, I actually rang the college three weeks after the results had come out to say, hey, how did I get on? And I'd done worse. So, you know, my mum had a brilliant idea that I should maybe go to France and do some nursing. So so there was an advert in one of the local newspapers for somebody in France who needed a nurse. Now, clearly, I'm not a nurse, but this person clearly had no money either. So I actually ended up on the southwest coast of France as an 18-year-old. Really, as I said, just a kid. I'd never seen anyone sick. I was, you know, dare I say, terribly male about it, really unempathetic, probably very much obsessed with my own sort of world. And in fact, mm. ended up looking after this very old uh, man who had rheumatoid arthritis and his dear wife. And his suffering was was truly terrible to witness. And, and, you know, he could hardly move. He was confined to a basement, sort of horrible damp basement, tiled floors, and on my room was next to his. And his wife would live upstairs. And he would sort of cry out at night in pain, or he would, um, you know, occasionally, he, you know, he was doubly incontinence and things. And, and what was terrible for me was that his wife didn't want me... To take part in that intimacy, she didn't want me to see his suffering. She didn't want, I think, from to, to look like she wasn't doing a good job. But it was clear that she couldn't cope. And anyway, so again, my slightly neurodivergent way, I came to sort of be tidying him up without her knowing. You know, I'd pop all the horrible stuff into, into cling film and chuck it in the bin, and she would never know. And so w- without any deliberate conscious decision on my part, I find myself thinking, "No, oh, I could be very good at this. I like looking after him, and I like him. I'm doing better for that, and so in so fact, so that
0: caring I, experience really yeah. changed your pr- probably your your view of what the profession Completely. could be. Uh, how did you manage to get into medicine though? Because you'd already been knocked back a couple of times. Well, now I'm raging. So now now I'm going. Okay,
1: so so actually, I, I, I knew a friend of mine was at the Royal Free, so I went to the Royal Free, and I got a train back from France. I don't know where I got a dodgy suit from. I think it must have been Top Shop. And I'd cut my own hair. So I walked into the Royal Free, the dean's office, the medical school, and knocked on the door and the secretary said, you know, are you lost or something? And I said, no, I need to see the dean. And she said, well, you, you can't see the dean. Who, who are you? And I said, well, I want to be a medical student. She said, well, you have to apply. And I said, well, I've done that. She said, well, what happened? I said, well, I failed. She said, well, that's it then. <laughs> I said, well, no, you don't understand. That's not it. And she said, well, no, you don't understand Is it? And I said, well, you don't understand because I, I don't <laughs> accept that. Anyway, she said, well, he's not here. And I said, well, I'll wait. She said, what do you mean you wait? I said, I'll wait. I said, I've got nowhere else to go. And she kind of went on, for goodness sake. Anyway, she, she said, well, you sit over there. And, you know, four hours later, a chap called Bruce McGilvery turned up, who was the dean of the Royal Free. And thankfully, he was a big kind of advocate of students and he was an amazing guy, and he, he he sort of he looked exhausted, and he was chatting to the secretary, he was sort of pointing at me and whispering, and he just turned to me and he said, "Okay, you, you've got five minutes," um, and I kind of sailed into his office, and the problem was I had no idea what I was going to say because I didn't I didn't have a plan. Again, typically I had no plan; I was just kind of acting spontaneously, just just do it. And he said, well, "What do you want?" And I said, "I went through the same. Well, you rejected me," and he said, "Well, it's because you didn't get the grades and you've messed up." And I said, "I know I've messed up," and then out came this, which I didn't know was there. Out came this. There's this man, and and he's suffering, and I I help him, and I go, and he's like, all right, all right, okay, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. He said, well, what do you want from me? And I remember saying, I just want you to give me a chance. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you an interview with with the full board. He said, I can't let you in, um, but I'll give you an interview. And three weeks later, I came back in, in a slightly better suit, although my hair was still terrible, And, um, yeah, they interviewed me, and I think a couple of the people on the panel were thinking, who is this guy? He's not even on the original list. And the dean was lovely. And, of course, I then failed first year and second year at medical school and got 51% in finals because, because I was still the same person, you know, but actually then did professional exams and passed them all first time and became quite successful. And I remember thinking each time it got really tough, kind of feeling like the dean... I owed him something and I owed the rule free Mm. that they took a chance on me. And so hence, that's the year because without any of that, none of this would have happened.
0: 1985 was the year the young Bruce Powell uh, got his way into medical school and then you went on, Bruce, to become a medical officer in the Royal Navy, which probably would have fixed up that long haircut you were talking about. How did you end up there? Well, yeah, you see, again, well, my
1: my friend, the guy, we we shared a squat in London because we, again, we (laughs) were slightly unusual students in that there was a sort of squat that we used to um, live in. I sort of stole a mattress out of a local skip and slept on one of the floors and he slept in one of the other ones and all the windows were broken. But it was fine. It, we kind of quite liked that. And he once said to me one day, I'm joining the Navy. Uh, and I sort of went, well, what are you talking about? And I knew he was afraid of flying, but he told me he was going to join submarines, which I thought was an overreaction. But he said, no, I'm <laughs> going to do submarines. And I sort of went, oh, okay. And, and literally five minutes later, um, he showed me how to apply and I applied too. And honestly, there was absolutely no planning. It just seemed like... A good idea. I was in the Falklands for a year. I spent about eighteen months with the Royal Marines at their training camp, um, and then you do a couple of years uh, in the hospitals um, in Plymouth and Portsmouth where they work. So it was a fabulous time, and I really loved the Royal Navy time. And of course, you know, having had the injury, you get chance to reflect on these things, which I think is one of the luxuries that most people don't have—is I actually have time to reflect on on all these formative yes. years. Did you know I also um, proposed to my wife the first day I met her? I mean, we're just <laughs> right. About well, no, we, no, leaves, we, leaves we better pause
0: briefly to talk about that, Bruce. <laughs> well, my
1: wife and I knew each other at school and then it kind of slightly fell apart when I went to medical school. And when I came back from the Falklands, well, having not seen each other or spoken to each other for six years, we met on the Friday night and got engaged on the Saturday. Got married. And I gather
0: your sister had something to do with that as well, didn't she?
1: Yeah, no, my sister had, well, she's slightly devious as well. And she um, pretended to be um, an old friend of Anita's, so managed to get her address from Anita's mum and dad. And so one drunken night on the ship, when there's nothing else to do but write letters to people. And I wrote to Anita and sort of told her I loved her, which, I mean, which was true. And I think everybody knew that. But anyway. And um, yeah, she sort of said, well, why don't we meet up when you get back? And she didn't even know I was in the Navy. She didn't know I'd qualified. We literally had no contact. And, um, yeah, so we're married still. We've been married for nearly 30 years. And she has been the rock that I've attached myself to through all the tricky times.
0: So you had a long and successful medical career and a fantastic relationship with your wife and kids as well. Everything was going fantastically until this incident back in September 2018. What happened, Bruce?
1: So I was taking part in a charity ride, so... There's a, a ride on the East Coast that I was taking part in. And if anyone who knows, there's a place called Apollo Bay and there's a long descent that comes into that off the hills. And apparently there is a, a hairpin halfway down, which most people were on the brakes for and I wasn't. Uh, I think I was probably thinking, why are they slowing down? I'm, I'm winning here. And, um, yes, yeah, so I hit the sign on the corner, warning of, of the approach. Of the hairpin, I hit that. At my bike computer, uh, helpfully told me it was sixty-five kilometres an hour head-on. Mm. So I hit the I hit the lamppost with my face, sort of cut my jaw in half and broke my neck and dam- brain damaged myself. And um, and in fact, yeah, I was found by a, a fellow competitor because nobody witnessed the crash. Who coincidentally was an intensive care nurse. And um, wow, yeah, I spoke to her and she she was so funny. She typically God God bless nursing staff. She was so under. Understated, She said, well, I just kind of opened your airway and just looked after you till the ambos arrived. She said, I thought you were dead. She said, your eyes were fixed and pupils were dilated. I thought you were dead. I said, so let me get this straight. You just opened my airway. I said, what you hmm. mean is you saved my life? And she said, well, I suppose so. I said, well, didn't you tell people? She said, no. She said, that was just my job. And I thought, wow, if that had been me, I'd have been telling everybody who ever moved what happened. And yet this, this amazing nurse just did her job and just left, took, tucked her bloodied gloves into the back of her jersey and rode off.
0: And you say, talking to people about what had happened, the nurse hadn't do that, and you didn't actually know what had happened.
1: No, I, I, it was very peculiar, obviously, knowing intensive care very well. I don't really remember about a year of what happened, but there are faint clips. And one of them is, is I remember lying in intensive care and thinking, okay, I'm in intensive care. It's strange. I don't recognise this one. I wonder which one I'm in, where I am. And, um, and Anita says, Well, you were sat there looking at your wristband. And um, Anita, she says, You looked at me quite conspiratorily and said, um, I think I've worked something out. And she said, Oh, what's that then? You went, I think I'm a patient. Hmm. And she went, Yeah, yeah, love, you've been here. You've been here <laughs> for eight days. You just woke up. <laughs> and, and, and again, you know, she, uh, there's then, you know, there's a brain injury unit, there's a locked unit, and they kind of let me out because I think I must have appeared like I knew what I was doing. And Anita said, Again, she'd come in. And I'd be looking at people's wounds or I'd be looking at their charts, other, other patients on the ward in my pyjamas. And she said, I'd say to you, Bruce, what are you doing? And she said, you'd say, well, I'm just, I'm just checking his wound. And she said, well, I, yeah, I know that, but, but why? And she said, you'd look at me and go, I don't know. And it's and, and that kind of started this sort of examination of what amazing, powerful identity that medical thing was. That despite really having no idea, mm. even that I had an accident, that you're still kind of going and having a looking at chance and chatting to people. And Lisa said it was it was quite peculiar. It was quite tragic, really, that there's this person sort of you know broken neck and pretty badly banged up, and he's still wandering around. Mm.
0: <laughs> Bruce, your aim after the accident was to rehabilitate and to get back to work as an actual doctor in the intensive care unit. But that turned out not to be possible. You you had to retire as an anaesthetist. That must have been a very hard thing to come to terms with.
1: Yeah, I tried very hard. I I really did. Um, And I think that has been the most difficult thing, you know, bones heal, you know, even even nerve injuries and multiple operations since is fine. But actually, the loss of identity, that loss of, of who you are, I found most difficult. And in fact, I started off really with no idea and then started to kind of be slightly amused by the fact that I was obviously disorientated. And then by these later times, the months after that, I found it very distressing. I found it very distressing that I couldn't remember stuff. I couldn't make my brain work. You know, they would give you you know they do these tests or they'd give you 20 words and ask you to remember as many as you could. And I could remember two. And this was oh. a guy who used to, you know, have a sort of, as people would say, old photographic memory and, and be able to do so many things so naturally. And suddenly I couldn't do any of that. And the whole experience was exhausting. As I said, suddenly I wasn't who I used to be.
0: Mm,
1: And mm. I look, I mean, I know, and it's very triggering. I know people talk about this, but I, you know, I went through a a very kind of logical decisions to, to kind of, you know, maybe end my own life. It's not something people like to talk about, but you know, I I realized that I felt very numb. I felt very um, unsure of what the point was. And of course, Mm. the time since then has been, has been a journey to kind of rediscover that.
0: You've described your life after sustaining not just physical injuries but a permanent brain injury as something like a a rebirth, Bruce Powell. Um, Yeah. Could you talk to us about uh, the challenges of that and what it is that's got you through and the the way your reimagined life is today?
1: Yeah, I think rebirth is true because – as a medic, you know, you're you're so focused, so focused. And even you're probably not a very good father or partner, really, because medicine was absolutely all I did. And, and, and of course, when intensive care patients leave the unit, certainly people like myself pat ourselves on the back and go, well, we did well there. You know, we, we, it's good that they left here. And, of course, ironically, having now become a patient, you know, gone to the other side of the bed, the realisation is, of course, is that's when the journey starts. That's when the struggle starts, you know. You know, my wife was very comfortable when there was a one-on-one nurse with the intensive care unit. She'd never seen it before. And then you go to the trauma unit where there's less nurses and then suddenly you're an outpatient and suddenly you're at home and suddenly you're having to, to make your own decisions and cope. And of course, my wife ran all that for me. And so my journey has been kind of understanding that actually critical care, while very important, is a very short period of time and actually particularly for brain injury patients it's a long long journey probably a never ending journey of rehabilitation oh. of trying to make some sense of what has happened and of course the other thing you know with brain injury is that is that people don't see those injuries when you're not coping when you're not sure what you're doing when you're uncertain of of who you are it's kind of nice if people know although of course you don't want to wear a t-shirt that says hey help me i'm brain injured so Every now and then, people are generous to me if, you know, I can't quite work out how to work a a machine or a find my ticket. You know, it's now, as I said, nearly five years, and I'm kind of able to do a little bit. I've tried to run a whole thing, a typical grandiose kind of plans, and I put those aside because I don't have the capacity for that. But what I do have the capacity for is joining people up.
0: Mm -hmm. And obviously, through all that, it sounds like your wife, Anita, has been an incredible (laughs) source of strength and support
1: ridiculous, frankly, um, and ridiculously selfless and generous. I mean, I read something which tragically said that 75% of all brain injury relationships fail afterwards mm. because, in my analogy, is that, is that Nietzsche and I used to sing close harmony. You know, we've known each other for years and years, and that close harmony was a really beautiful thing. Problem is, is if one of you is slightly off key or slightly off timing, it sounds terrible. It doesn't work. And so Anita and I, you know, have had to learn to, let's maybe say, sing a duet, you know, she sings and I sing, so that at least then it coordinates what we do. Um, And, you know, even though we've known each other for 30 years, we're still figuring out how to make things work. And again, you know, she never asked for any of that. She never asked to be the one, you know, sat at my bedside for all those weeks and months. And I'm, you know, I'm internally grateful for that.
0: Mm. Well, Bruce, it's been fascinating speaking with you about your experiences as a doctor and a patient, and now, of course, a dedicated advocate for brain injury patients and for organ donation as well. Dr. Bruce Powell, thank you again for speaking with us. Thank you. And no matter what happened uh, with the accident, it certainly hasn't changed your good taste in music, Bruce, because I'm very excited about your musical selection for <laughs> the end of the year that made me. What are we going to go out with today?
1: Well, it sounds a bit cheesy, but honestly, this was, <laughs> this was the first single I ever bought. So this is Don't Stop Me Now by Queen.
0: Fantastic. If you want to have a good time, just give me a call. Don't stop me now. have a good time. Sorry, Freddie, Freddie. but we are actually going to have to stop you now because we're running out of time on Sunday Extra, but that, of course, is the wonderful Freddie Mercury and Don't Stop Me Now by Queen, the song chosen by our guest on The Year That Made Me, uh, Dr. Bruce Powell. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.